I read comics. Show number 69. Let's see. What do we have this time? Well, we have comics that I've read, so we're going to talk about them. First up, I wanted to talk about some things that I got courtesy of Virgin Comics. I have no idea how I got on their mailing list. Stuff just showed up. So I'm going to read some of it. Something I'm not going to read because they sent me the Jenna Jameson stuff and I have no interest in that or looking at her tits. So I think I'm just going to pass that along to somebody else. But they did send me some other stuff that I pretty much enjoyed. One of them is Dan Dare. So this is uh, issue number two that they sent. I didn't get issue number one. And the writer here is Garth Ennis, and the art is by Gary Erskine. And I know about Dan Dare as a character, so this is the reimagining or the relaunching of it under the Virgin banner. And I thought this was really good. I have been reading a lot of this British-inspired space stuff. You know, I had talked about Ministry of Space, which was pretty good, and Orbiter, which was sort of in that same vein. So I appreciate the different take on space travel and different personalities from what you're you're used to seeing from uh, the American point of view. So I thought this was pretty good. And it had some cool monsters in it. So Dan Dare is called out of uh, retirement, more or less, to go help with this new initiative. And he gets to be on a ship that's commanded by a woman, which is kind of neat. And he meets up with some of his old friends and they're out to find out what what the big monster is, basically, that they're going to have to defeat in the end. There's also a subplot that the prime minister of England down on Earth is being taken over by some alien force. So we have to see where that leads. Oh, you know, I realize it's not Ghost Hunters, it's Shadow Hunter, because I was thinking of Ghost Hunters for some reason. Um, so just an aside, yeah, just not into looking at the tits. Anyway, back to Dan Dare. So this moves right along and there's some great dialogue in it. The one criticism I have is that the art is really inconsistent. So it's really hard for me to tell who the characters are from one panel to the next unless they're, I have to look at their clothes and go, oh, that's right. This is who this is supposed to be. And then I got to look at their clothes again. Their faces just don't look the same from panel to panel. And I think that that is a flaw. The monsters are drawn really cool. There's some other aliens who aren't bad guys. There are other good guys. And they are also scared of the really horrible green monsters. But I think that the artist needs to work more on consistency in his faces because it's not a good thing when you can't tell who someone is supposed to be. So I like Dan Dare. Um, the other one that they sent is called The Megas. This is issue number one, and it's front, it, right on the front it says, From Jonathan Mostow, director of U-571 and Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. I didn't see Terminator 3 because I thought Terminator 2 was cool enough, and I didn't see any need to go beyond that. I gotta say, um, this was a really interesting plot, but this whole first issue was basically set up, and I've said that before. When you're writing towards collecting it as a graphic novel, don't bother to put it out in single issues. You know, I don't need a whole issue's worth of setup, 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 setup with nothing much going on. It's just boring. And then I get to the end of it and it's like, okay, where's the plot? I mean, there's a little bit of a plot in here. So the world that it's in is supposed to be if the United States had been founded not as a democracy, but as a... Um, well, not a theocracy, but an aristocracy with a ruling uh, um, 
a ruling class that inherits by, you know, uh, descent. So they're called megas. And I don't know why, but they all, they're, they're not albinos, but they all have white hair. There's, that's not explained. Uh, they are in charge of the government. They're in charge of the courts. They're in charge of everything. They're all the people who run everything, I guess, religion too. And we're led to believe that in general, some of them are really high minded and have the best interests of everyone in, in their, you know, what they do in public. But others of them, of course, are corrupted by power. And there's some scenes of the, the young megas out on the town being dicks and one of them trips a waitress or something like that. But they're easy to spot because of the, the blonde, the white hair. Sorry, it's not blonde hair. It's actually white. It's snow white. It's a little weird to think that nothing would be different except that these people who rule by heredity are in charge. Everything else seems to be exactly the same. There's a little bit of differences in technology, like the technology seems to be a little bit more advanced. But other than that, um, everything looks pretty much the same. And I'm not sure that that would be the case, but whatever, you get to create your own world and do what you want in it. Now, there is some pretty offensive stuff right at the beginning. So the plot, such as it is, is that one of the mega guys, uh, who was a mega prince with the silly name of Ellington Boudreaux, goes to a whorehouse, and apparently the whorehouses are state-sanctioned, and he's dead because he killed himself, but he also killed three of the women who were supposed to be with him. So, as usual, um, you know, the poor women die, they're not even given names, and they're just disposable because they're a plot device. And of course, because they're supposed to be prostitutes, even when they're dead and they have big holes in them and their blood is spattered all over, they're still drawn in very sexy poses. So in fact, two of them are laying next to each other. They're wearing, let's see, one of them is wearing a top and a bottom, like a little bikini. The other one's wearing a top, but no bottom. And they're, one of them has her arms around the other one. You can't see their faces because of course they have really long hair, but they're posed very much as if they're asleep, even though they've just been shot by this guy. And it's said in the dialogue that, uh, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, the girls in the next room heard screaming. They could tell it wasn't fun in games anymore. There's some implication that maybe there was some S&M stuff happening, although you don't really see evidence of it. So you're thinking, okay, so he's in a room with these women and he decides to do whatever he's going to do. And they're screaming and they're trying to get him to stop. And yet when he shoots them, they're lying passively together on a couch, not resisting, posing themselves artfully so that when the authorities come in to find them dead, um, they're still looking very, very attractive, even when they're dead, not like clawing at the door to get out or with, um, you know, something heavy in your hand, maybe to defend yourself. Because, you know, why would you do that if you were a woman? And then the best part or the worst part is when our hero um, who we come to know throughout this book. He's an investigator, not one of the megas, but a cop. Uh, he looks at this one woman who's dead and he's thinking to himself, so young, so fragile. And he kind of turns her face over and he says, she looks like a punk geisha. What does that even mean? A punk geisha. And the funny part is she doesn't look like a punk geisha. <laughs> she looks like a white woman with red lipstick on. There's nothing punk about her and there's nothing geisha about her either. She's not made up like that. It's really stupid. It's like, it's so cliched and so over the top. And so like, you could see the writer going, 
okay, he's got to say something here. He's got to say something really kind of hip and edgy. And yet, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that this woman's dead. What could she look like? Well, she's a prostitute, so she must be a geisha. Okay, even though I don't really know too much about geisha, that sounds good. It's a foreign word. And because she's, you know, kind of uh, out on the edge there, oh, she's punk. She's all punk, so we'll call her a punk geisha. <laughs> it's so stupid. <clears throat> so that's a terrible scene. And uh, for the rest of it, you know, it's just all set up about him trying to figure out why this guy killed himself. And there's some other stuff going on with the megas and blah, blah, blah. And, and then it just ends. And, and of course, you know, rather than having um, more pages of actual plot in here, there's a bunch of ads plus a sketchbook. How about a couple more pages of story and, you know, lose the sketchbook. Four more pages of story would have helped me out in a big way rather than the sketchbook because I don't really care about the sketches. The art isn't that interesting. So I don't think I would bother to read any more of this because it's just not that good. Um, and since when is it the case that, you know, movie directors or comic book writers, okay, Kevin Smith aside, is that a thing now that I'm not aware of that suddenly because you've directed movies, you're competent to write comic books? They're similar, but you know, they're not really the same kind of media. You have to have a slightly different approach. Although as Logan and I have talked about before, comic books are becoming much more like movies in that they're trying to use some of the tricks and techniques that you see in movie making in cinematography transposed to comic books. And personally, I think that that's wrong. Comic books are comic books. And while you could use some of the tricks, reading a comic book should not be like watching a movie because there's words on the page and other things. So you can't just translate it directly like that. It doesn't work. So those are the Virgin comics. Um, thanks to whoever sent them to me. Oh, they also sent me um, a CD of something like uh, Britain's best emo angsty music or something like that. So I put it in my car and I guess I'll listen to it once to see if it's any good. But I didn't recognize hardly any of the bands on there, except I think they had Teardrop Explodes or something. But yeah, that's what I want to drive around listening to is a bunch of angsty music. Let me talk about uh, some more fun stuff and I'll, I'll break it up with some music, I think. I recently had the opportunity to watch some really, really, really good Japanese movies, which I don't know why I just hadn't gotten around to seeing before, but I'm so glad that I did. So the first thing was I watched Howl's Moving Castle, which is uh, a Japanese film directed by Hayao Miyazaki. And everybody probably knows who Miyazaki is because he's done so many great movies, including um, Princess Mononoke and Kiki's Delivery Service. So I'd heard about this. Everybody told me how great it was, but I finally sat down and watched it and it was wonderful. What a great movie. Um, Typical of Japanese movies and animation is that there's a lot of nature stuff and there's probably all kinds of cultural things that I totally missed out on, but it's a beautiful movie to watch and I loved it because it has a girl as the protagonist. If you don't know the plot, and I'll recount it a little bit here, there's a girl named Sophie and she has some sisters and it's not quite clear what's happened to her parents, but she has a stepmother who doesn't seem to care too much. Sophie works in a hat shop making hats and her life's kind of boring, but she seems okay with it. And one day she's walking around, she meets a handsome man in the street, but that he just leaves. And then she's in the hat shop one day and a woman comes in who turns out to be a witch and the witch puts a curse on her that turns her into an old woman of about 90 years old. And so she decides that she should go seek her fortune or just leave. So as an old woman, she escapes and she goes to 
finds something, she just kind of leaves. And the world that she lives in is kind of a magical world. There are wizards and there are witches. And um, because it's a Miyazaki film, there's these incredible Brazilish, I mean, Terry Gilliam Brazilish airships that go over. And there's a king and it seems like there's a war going on, but it's never really explained. And there's just all kinds of cool magical stuff that's taken for granted by the people who live in the kingdom. And of course, flying. There's lots and lots of flying. So while she's on her little adventure, she meets a scarecrow that she helps, uh, an alive scarecrow, not like the one in the Wizard of Oz, really two sticks with a turnip head on it and a hat. It doesn't talk. It just kind of hops around and she finds Howl's moving castle. So Howl is a wizard and this is his house that kind of walks around and it makes big steamy noises. And so she finally gets inside of it and finds out that it's powered by a a fire demon whose name is Calcifer. And in the movie, he's voiced by Billy Crystal, which is kind of a weird choice, but that's okay. And the rest of the movie is her trying to get this curse taken off her and also to try and help the fire demon Calcifer, who says he also has a curse. So he'll, he'll break her curse if she can break his contract. And we find out how that is entwined with the wizard howl and various other things that happen. And there's just lots of beautifully animated sequences of flying and there's some violence and we see the wizard howl turning himself into kind of a, a bird like creature and going out fighting other people, including the witch. And then, um, eventually it it all has a happy ending and there's a lot of really funny, silly humor in it as well. But visually, it's just stunning. They got some really great talent to do the American dub for it. So here in the U.S., it was released by um, Disney Pictures. So they were able to afford some very nice voice talent. So Christian Bale plays the wizard, Howell, and Gene Simmons, who as an actress from Um, the 40s and 50s does the voice of Sophie as an old woman and she's just wonderful you know one of those high caliber British talents who is just wonderful in this role she's great she brings just the right amount of um, age in Sophie's voice but also her spark because she is still at heart a young woman it's great Um, Lauren Bacall plays the witch Billy Crystal plays the the fire demon Um, and the other folks who do the voices are are more character voice actors as well. The really cool thing that I loved about this is that now that Sophie is an old woman, she pretty much feels free to say or do anything she wants to because there's no consequences for it. You know, she, if the curse gets taken off, that's great. But if it doesn't, she can just go where she wants to. She's not afraid of anything. She's not afraid to speak her mind or say what she wants to, or do pry into things where she shouldn't be. And it's just really, really refreshing to see that age is the thing that frees her because once you're over 40, you kind of figure that out for yourself if you're a woman. So that was really great. So I really, really love this movie and I encourage everyone to see it as well as other Miyazaki movies. And I'll talk about another one in a minute. So I was curious about the book that this movie was based on. So I went to the library and I got it out and it's called Howl's Moving Castle and it's by Diana Wynne Jones, who apparently is a very prolific author of young adult type fantasy. Um, I'm guessing that she started writing this stuff before, after I grew up out of young adult literature. So I was unaware of her and did not know that she's written, what does it say in the back flap here? She's written more than 30 critically acclaimed books. She lives in Bristol, England. 
And there's another Hal book too, which I think I might try to read. So I just got done with the book and the book is totally different from the movie. And I was reading a little bit about it and apparently she was a consultant on the movie, but she acknowledged that it didn't really have much to do with her book and she was fine with that. So they're different. But if you've seen the movie, I would encourage you to read the book as well. It's a quick read. Um, you probably finish it in a couple of days. It starts off and everything is pretty much the same. But once Sophie gets into the castle, it takes many, many different turns and there's a lot more subplots. There are whole characters that are either absent in the movie or different. Um, lots and lots of different motivations for the characters to do what they want to. And the character of Howell, to me, seems very different. In the movie, he's very mysterious. Um, he's kind of a jerk in some ways. There's a very funny scene, both in the book and in the movie, where um, Sophie has cleaned the whole castle up and she's messed with the stuff in his bathroom. He's very vain. He spends hours in the bathroom getting ready to go out and, and make women fall in love with him. And he ends up dyeing his hair the wrong color. And he's so upset over this. Um, he just throws a tantrum, basically a big old tantrum, and he ends up oozing green slime all over the castle. And he's so depressed that he can't walk anymore. So Sophie and the little assistant have to kind of pick him up and, and drag him up the stairs and put him in back in the bathroom again. But it's funny to see him throwing a, a tantrum like that and, you know, oozing green slime. What else would a wizard do? But in the movie, he is shown to have a more thoughtful and selfless side where he's fighting not only for himself but because the king kingdom is at war he he's trying to do the right thing in the book he seems much more vain and self-absorbed and not very nice and you find out in the end that he has done some very selfless things and that he's tried to remove the curse that sophie has even though she hasn't told him about it he he figures it out anyway but he's really fucking annoying and you know, it seems in the book that the reason that she puts up with him is because she wants to help Calcifer, who is her friend. He's much nicer than Howl is, even though he's a fire demon. She needs a place to stay. And she really wants to, to get the curse broken off. And, and right near the end of the book, she actually decides that she's had enough of him and she's just going to leave because she sees the way he behaves. He's trying to make women fall in love with him. And that there's sort of an explanation for that, but not really. And at the end of the book, spoiler, um, the curse does get taken off of her. Uh, we sort of find out that she has some magical powers, which is kind of implied in the movie, sort of kind of, but in the book, it's made much more explicit. And she and Hal live happily ever after the end. And I thought, why, why is she staying with him? he's not that nice. You know, he's handsome and all that, but so what? And she has her own powers now and she's not an old woman who needs a place to, a warm bed to sleep in. She could easily find her own way at the end of the book and a little bit in the movie. She finds her family again, her sisters, and they're all sort of reunited and everybody's happy and things are good. And I was thinking, why does she want to stay with him? He's just as vain and kind of as much of a dipshit as he was before. So for me personally, that was very unsatisfying. If you have read the book and you have a different take on this, I would really like to know about it because it just seemed all too simple that suddenly they, they, you know, Howl is redeemed in a way. It turns out that the contract between him and the fire demon involved his heart, which is also in the movie. But it doesn't seem to have made him a better person and it certainly doesn't explain a lot of his behavior. So I just felt a little bit cheated by that ending. Still a good book. It's a very well-written book. 
it's got some really good jokes in it and some wonderful characterizations and all kinds of really cool magic-y things that are, I just love them, you know, like the seven league boots. Okay. Maybe that's an English thing that I don't know about, but they're these special boots that you put on and every step you take is seven leagues. So you can go anywhere you want to really, really quickly. It was cool. I thought it was neat. And the cloak that turns you into someone else and living in a world where people, you're like an apothecary and people come to your door and buy spells from you to do things and they work. It's all real magic. So that's the Howl's Moving Castle story. I also got to watch Kiki's Delivery Service, which was also extremely cool. And I don't know, I should look it up, but I don't know what that's based on. But it's about a girl named Kiki who is from a family of witches and she uh, goes out on her own to have an adventure to become a real witch. And she takes off on her broom and she lands in this beautiful kingdom by the sea and starts a delivery service because she can deliver things on her broom very, very quickly. And it's just little adventures about her growing up and what she does to save other people and how she sees people being mean to each other, which makes her decide never, ever to be like that. And it's great, again, to see a young girl as the protagonist who kind of does what she wants to do and um, doesn't really care that much about what other people think. So I can, I recommend that very, very highly. It's really good. And it has a cute cat character in it voiced by Phil Hartman, which was also very cool. So yeah, Miyazaki movies, I think I'm going to be watching a lot of those. And I know that there are a lot of them. So I'll have plenty of stuff to watch. So let me take a little break and come back and talk about two more things. Um, one of them slightly young adult oriented and the other very adult. So don't go away. In addition to the other things that I'm a geek about, like comic books and Star Trek, I'm also a big Oz geek. And I read all of the Oz books when I was young. They had them at the library. And I would just take one out and read it and bring it back and take out the next one. So I ripped through them all pretty quickly. And then as an adult, I, I reread a lot of them. I think they're really wonderful books and great, great kids books. 
They have beautiful language in them. I, Because I'm a geek, I prefer the books that were written by L. Frank Baum rather than the other authors who came after him because I think I just like his style better. I think it's a little more whimsical and lots of non sequiturs that are really funny and really, really corny jokes in there. So I just like all that stuff. So I didn't know that Eric Schanauer had written some Oz books. And by golly, there they were in the library the last time I went when I was getting a Howl's Moving Castle. And I thought, hey, this is cool. I'll see what this is about. So Eric Schanauer, for those of you who don't know, is probably best known for his classical works like The Age of Bronze and things like that. He was also at the Prism booth the day that I happened to be there. And I kind of wish I'd known about the Oz stuff because I wanted to talk to him about it. So I just found this collection and apparently he had written all of these separately and then they were collected up into this beautiful graphic novel. So this has five different Oz stories in it and they are written and illustrated both by Eric Schanauer and they're really good, but they're really different. So the Oz stories, I think one of the reasons I liked them a lot as a kid and, and like them looking back on them is that they're they have danger in them. Like there's scary stuff that happens. And you know, some of that is even in the movie, but even more so in the books, there's a lot of scary people in them and there's scary magic and some people get killed. I mean, they're sometimes they're not actual people, but you know, beings, they get killed and it's, it's not too pretty. And there are mean people there. Not everybody in Oz is very nice. Um, there's the, you know, the woman who has the head that she takes off, which was in the, um, you know, there was another movie that they made, the sequel, which was Return to Oz, which was great, um, which I really, really liked a lot. And I have it on DVD now. Um, and that was made in the, oh gosh, it must've been in the eighties. Feruza Balk played Dorothy. And that was really cool. And in some ways, although it was very dark, it was a little truer to some of the dark things that happened in Oz. Anyway, I say that because um, in these stories, they they kind of go back and forth between the level of darkness that it's in them. So there's um, the Enchanted Apples of Oz, the Secret Island of Oz, the Ice King of Oz, the Forgotten Forest of Oz, and the Blue Witch of Oz. The first three stories start out by being uh, funnier, a little more whimsical, uh, with no real sense of danger that's going to happen in them. Um, it's great. I have to say personally, I had just forgotten about so many characters that I really loved so much that are in here. Aside from Dorothy and the Scarecrow and Ozma and, and the main characters, all the, the secondary characters who just pop up, you know, they're there. They're there in Oz. There's Eureka the kitten and then there's the piglets and just all the other folks that you're happy to see are still kind of hanging out in Oz, which is really good. And, uh, the adventures have a beginning, a middle, and an end, which is really nice. And there, it's not exactly a reset button, but Dorothy, who's usually the main character here, tries to put things right at the end. And sometimes she does, and sometimes they just leave and nothing really changes. Then that's okay, too. In The, the Secret Island, um, she and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion as well end up finding um, this island that's in the middle of a, a roaring whirlpool. And the people who live there are you know, they're okay with living there. They don't see any need to not be there anymore. So they have some adventures and then they leave them and they go back. Um, and they had gone there actually to find a fish and then the fish talks to them because the animals can talk and says, you know what? I don't really think I want to go back with you. But it's kind of interesting that there's a, a 
island in the middle of a whirlpool and the people are perfectly content to live there. Now, the last story there, um, the, the Ice King is a little weirder. There's an Ice King who lives somewhere else and he decides that he wants either Dorothy or Ozma to be his queen. So he kidnaps Ozma and then everybody has to go down there to get her back. And um, in an abrupt change of heart, he turns good <laughs> because his heart melts a little bit. And um, I wouldn't trust that guy at all. And they don't seem to trust him very much either. And then they leave really quickly before I guess his heart freezes up again. But there's a little bit of scariness in there. Now, the last two stories are much, much darker and much more adult. I'm not sure adult is the right word. One of the things that, that I love about the way that Baum wrote his Oz books is that I felt like he really knew how to get things from a child's perspective. Reading them as a child, I really related to the things that were happening and the way Dorothy would act and sometimes getting frustrated with adult behavior because you're like, why are they acting like that? Why are they doing that? And I felt like in these first three stories, there was more of it. And maybe because Dorothy was more of a central character in the last two stories, it's not so much because they're about other people who have other agendas and they're more Lord of the Rings ish in a way. It's more adult, not a bad thing, just a different thing. So in the, uh, which one is this? The Forgotten Forest, there's uh, a, a forest wood nymph who gets cast out of her group of wood nymphs because she kissed a guy and that's a strictly forbidden thing to do. And she is so upset by this um, that she marries the king of the trolls and in the end decides that she wants to get revenge on the wood nymphs who kicked her out by burning down the forest, which is the trolls plan all along and they were just merely using her. And she eventually realizes that that's not the right thing to do and the forest doesn't get burned down. But it's it's very, it's all about anger and betrayal and jealousy and, um, you know, getting revenge and, and just really kind of mean and icky stuff. And there's some cool things in it. So Dorothy has to be the one to, to go and try to help her. There's a giant flying bat who's kind of cool. Um, the scarecrow rides there on, on the sawhorse, which is, is good to see him again. Um, but it's just much more, uh, angsty in a way. And you're not really sure that she's going to do the right thing. And also, you know, she's married to the King of the Trolls. And as a kid, you know, I guess you're not thinking about what that's really supposed to mean, but it seems pretty, pretty horrible. And there's also some, some monsters who are supposed to be helping as well. Um, some dragons and they're pretty scary as well. And of course all the bad guys don't trust each other and they're all planning on double crossing each other, etc., etc. So anyway, it has a happy ending, which is good, but it, it was still a little disturbing to me. I felt very emotionally run roughshod over. And then the last story, okay, let me backtrack just for a minute to say um, the one really cool thing about the secret Island is that it has the cat, the glass cat, with the pink brains that work. I love the glass cat. I have to say the glass cat is probably one of my favorite characters in all of Oz because she has such an attitude. <laughs> she is really just, uh, so obnoxious that she, I just love her. I just love the glass cat. And I love the way she talks about, um, Oh, I'm sorry. She's in the last one. Eureka was in that one. The glass cat is in this last story that I'm about to talk about. And she's always talking about how you can, she's so smart and you can tell that because you can see her brains. She says, you can watch them work. 
So just love the glass cat. So in this last story, which is called the Blue Witch, we find out about the other good witch because there is Glinda and then, you know, the, there were the four bad witches. So there were the four good witches. So we get to find out the story. And it starts off as a, a story about, uh, you know, just how the witch, like a history of these particular witches in Oz. And then it gets all, again, very, very dark and adult with the the witch's husband who takes off to the moon and then something happens to her son and then it turns out that her husband had a brother who was also um a, a witch and he married her sister and then they had a son and then something happened to his son and and it it all gets really crazily entwined and again it's all about betrayal and love and trust and um, there's an assumption that the, the husband's brother stole the witch's child and which turns out to be true. And it, it's very shockingly adult and emotional. Again, not bad, just not what I was expecting from an Oz book. Um, and then there's some magic stuff at the end. And then in the end, to give away the story, um, they're all okay. The characters of the story after Ozma sort of helps put things to right. But um, the child stays with his uncle instead of going back with his mother because he really can't remember his mother anymore. And, you know, she, she at least gets to see him. But that's a pretty different story from the way things usually end up in Oz, which is that, um, you know, everybody ends up with who they're supposed to end up with. So just a, a darker take. So I liked all the stories, but they are very different. And I can definitely recommend that book. Now, I had some Silver Age craziness to talk about and that is another legion story which was in the legion uh legion of the superheroes this is volume nine of the archive here's my book so <laughs> this was when uh when mortimer started doing the art for it and i gotta say i don't like when mortimer's art very much and it's part of the reason why i don't like reading these stories as much i love kurt swan so much more but anyway, that being that as it may, and this was when Jim Shooter um, took over as the writer too, so there's a little more angst to it. But I love this particular story, and I remember reading as I have these comics called Heroes for Hire, and the Legion suddenly starts uh, charging for their services, and it turns out all to be a plan to catch these crooks who are on this planet, and blah, 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 1969. But the great thing about this particular story is, and I didn't remember this, but they're here in the story. Um, there's in in the 31st century there's the science police so it starts off deep space and a science patrol ship pursues a fleeing criminal and they're trying to follow this guy and they're going to this very mysterious planet and the guy says uh but captain there are rumors about moto haven't you heard of modulus and the guy says modulus bah space bilge no no Old wives' tale is going to keep the science police from performing their duty. Follow her down. So I just think the science police is the coolest thing ever. I want to be in the science police. I don't care what kind of stuff you get to do. Being in the science police sounds like the coolest job ever. This particular story is also notable for the fact that the criminals, in trying to stop um, Brainiac and Duo Damsel, blow a um, preparation L, which is a mind expanding gas. And you get to see Brainy have a freak out for a couple of pages, very 1969 with kaleidoscopic colors as the potent chemicals assault the reason of Brainiac 5's mighty mind. 
got to resist. He's talking like Kirk. Got to resist this. Can't let it. Oh, no use. The chemical's too strong. I'm lost. Doomed. Losing my mind. Can't fight it. And then Superboy rescues him by breathing in the drug, which apparently doesn't affect him. I don't know why it wouldn't. But anyway, very, very cool to see Brainiac 5 freaking out on mind-expanding drugs. Very cool. So um, there's this is also notable for the fact that Superboy uses the word bread when talking about money, which cracks me up totally. Like, he's so hip and all that. <laughs> so it all turns out to be a plot, blah, blah, blah. And the Legion never really charge people and they have to give back all their money and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I do like the fact that there are living crystals on this one planet and they're so cute. They look like little turtles with crystal backs. Anyway, science police. I want to be in the science police. And lastly, we have uh, another Conan book. So after WonderCon, because I didn't spend very much money there, I went immediately to Comic Relief and ended up dropping about 150 bucks on things. And one of the things I got was Conan and the Midnight God. And this was another Conan book from Dark Horse, but it was written... Not, it's not in continuity, but it was written by um, Josh Dysart, who I met. He was standing there at Chris Wisney's booth when we were talking. And so we got to chatting and I was like, oh, you've written Conan. That's awesome. So I wanted to read it and um, talk about it. And I'd like to talk to him about writing this because I think it's cool. So uh, this is script by Joshua Dysart and art by Will Conrad and the colors by Juan Ferreira. Ferreira, that's it. Sorry about that. I can't pronounce his name. So this is a story that takes place when Conan is king of Aquilonia, and he's kind of um, been there for a little bit, and there's definitely the implication that he's a little bored with being a king. But it's a cool story. I really liked it. Uh, there's, it's, the enemy here is um, Stygia, which is Egypt. Um, and once again, he gets to fight snakes. And, you know, as I was reading this, I thought, how many times has he killed giant snake monsters? I think it's a lot. And I wonder if he's getting bored with that now. You know, I can remember at least two distinct occasions when he had to kill a really giant snake monster. Um, so he's good at it because he's done it a lot of times. And they don't always come from Stygia, but they often do. So if you have a giant snake monster that you need killed, Conan is your guy. And here it's his kingdom that's at stake, but he's also kind of doing this to protect the rest of the world because Stygia, um, the priest who's in charge of all this, wants to take over and blah, blah, blah. So it's cool. There's magic. There's lots of sword fighting. There's people getting their heads chopped off. There's also a subplot. So um, faithful readers will remember that when he became king, the woman who helped him become king, um, Zenobia, who was a, a courtesan, um, he he rescued her and made her his queen. So here she's pregnant and she has a baby, but unfortunately the baby dies and that's partly what's going on here. Um, but she's cool. It's good to see her as a character and, and she seems um, just as capable of taking care of things as she ever was. And uh, they seem to get along very well as a married couple. So it's good to see that. The art here is pretty good. Um, it kind of varies in the artist's technique. So in some places... It's a very clean line with coloring laid over top of it. And in other places, it's much more like um, the other Conan Dark Horse stuff where it's more of a wash and it looks painted. And I couldn't tell what the difference was or, or why it looked different from story to story. But, you know, whatever. It's It still looks really good. And Conan looks like Conan. And um, it's uh, the magic-y stuff is pretty scary looking. There's a lot of... Um, dead people and the big snake monster at the end. Now, the one 
thing which I have to bring up, of course, is that um, he finds, uh, as he's on this quest to kill the giant snake monster, um, these servants. So I'll read this little passage where this old witch is telling him, um, he said, saying, she's of the dancing assassin cult, worshippers of the first great entity, that of which Set is, a, is but a pale imitation. She is a wife to the midnight god who dwelled in the void that spat out the world, even before the great Jebel Sag was worshipped by all things. These serpent women were his first order and the greatest warriors in all of Stygian history. So there are these women who are kind of part snaky. They have snaky heads and arms that are very claw-like and feet that have claws on them and stuff. But they got big tits and they have a cloak around their head, which kind of winds around their bodies. And there are places where they're fighting and they're very athletic and grateful as they do it. But, you know, gratuitous TNA in the, the snake women, <sighs> they couldn't have dressed them. You know, there's a shot right here that I'm looking at where this snake woman is fighting Conan, who of course wins. Um, and she's, she's just sliced uh, someone in half. So she's kind of standing forward and, and has a sword in her hand. And I think her posture is just all wrong for someone who's just done the move that she's supposed to do. Because of course her back is arched and her ass is sticking out. And um, her tits, we're seeing her from behind, so we can see her right tit. Um, and then we can see most of her ass. And if the lighting was any better, we'd be able to see right into her crotch. And I'm pretty sure that that was the artist's intent here. And, you know, one thing I don't really need to see when I'm reading a story about Conan, King of Aquilonia, is the crotch of a snake woman. Because it doesn't add anything to the story. So I was not happy with that, but I managed to get through it to finish this story and see what happened. So... Of course, as you would know, you know, Conan triumphs overall and rather than laying waste to Stygia, which doesn't, it seems like a lot of that's already been done by the snake people, he goes back home to his wife and continues to be king. So I like this story. I really like what Dark Horse is doing with the Conan stuff. And this was a good one-off kind of effort. And you know what? I'm really glad that this was a graphic novel because if I'd read this as individual issues, I would have been pissed off. I like it much more the way it's all together. Pacing was good. Not a lot of wasted space. Plot moves right along for a book. I'm not sure it would have been so good as individual issues, but yeah, I really, really like this. So I think that's going to do it for now. Um, of course, more stuff next time, although the next show might actually be the Iron Man show. Uh, we are very, very excited, Logan and I, about going to see that. And I got to say, the trailer that they're showing and the commercial on TV is just awesome. I posted a still from it up at the blog because I wanted to bring attention to the fact that in this particular clip, it's Iron Man who's jumping up to punch some guy in the face, but he's jumping in such a balletic way. It's so graceful. He's kind of got his knee bent and is just gliding through the air. And for me, that's what makes it a superhero movie. And that's what makes it a really cool Iron Man movie is just the grace that goes along with Iron Man fighting someone in this incredibly athletic and beautiful pose as he goes to smash somebody's face in. That's what I want in a movie. So I'm really excited about it. 
So I think that's going to be it for now. Um, go shop at Comic Relief if you get the chance and go buy Conan and the Midnight God and check out the other things. And don't forget to go to your library and check out all the great books that they have there too. Support your library. So until next time, I think we'll end this with another one-hit wonder as we did before. Sing me, sing me, sing me. Sing me, sing me, baby. Listen with your heart.